There's a really cool verse that uh, I found in Isaiah 52.6. It's in the New Living Translation. And it really is going to be a theme verse for our whole series this summer. God says through the prophet Isaiah, I will reveal my name to my people, and they will come to know its power. I will reveal my name to my people, and they will come to know its power. Uh, we're embarking upon a series on the Old Testament names of God, just not, not as something to fill the space for the summer, not as just uh, some you know, answer to our curiosity of fully understanding what the names of God mean, but I really believe that there is uh, the potential for us to draw closer to our, our Savior, our Creator, our God, through knowing His identity, because as we're going to find uh, names in ancient times he held huge significance. They weren't just about, oh, that sounds like a pretty name, or that's a popular name, but there was, there was deep significance to names. Um, today, parents often choose baby names by how they sound rather than what they mean. But in Old Testament times, uh, naming was not a random de designation. It, it revealed important information about people, their identity, their destiny, their family affiliation. It was huge. Names are so important in Scripture that God often renamed people. You're aware of that, how Saul became Peter, and, and, and Christ said to Peter, upon this rock, your confession of faith in me, I will build my church. Abram, which means exalted father, was changed to Abraham, the father of a multitude, or the father of many. Jacob, whose name meant grabber of the heel, or deceitful, was changed uh, after he wrestled with God, his new name, uh, Israel, communicated one who prevails. means you have wrestled with uh, angels and have prevailed. And so he became the father of Israel. The, in the book of Hosea, God changed Hosea's son and daughter's names to signify changes in his relationship with his people. Uh, Lo Ami, not my people, became Ami, my people. Lo Rumama. Uh, not pity became Ruhama, one who has shown compassion. Names in Scripture communicate purpose. They communicate destiny. They communicate authority. They have to do with a person's makeup and their character. And so again, as we study the names of God, it's not just idle curiosity, but it's understanding who he is. And uh, because what he does, as we've learned so well through the Fruit of the Spirit series, what he does flows out of who he is. <clears throat> I was reading this week just a reminder that, you know, when, when a married woman changes her surname to match that of her husband, she's agreeing to align herself with uh, the very essence of her identity with the man that she loves. When a child becomes adopted, that child uh, takes on the family name and takes on that new identity. In John 17, verse 26, Jesus said this, he was praying his high priestly prayer. He was in the upper room with the disciples, and he had like a whole chapter where he was praying to the Holy, uh, the Heavenly Father. And it's in the disciples' uh, presence because obviously they heard it and recorded it. So w what an amazing thing to hear the God of the universe, the Word made flesh, praying to the Heavenly Father. And he says, among other things, I have made your name known to them, to the disciples and to the people. And I will continue to make it known. I have made your name known, and I will continue to make it known. By that, Jesus was communicating his purpose 
and coming to earth as the, as the word made flesh. That he was literally unveiling the heart and the mind and the essence and the character of God to his people through that revelation. In scripture, the Hebrew name for, or the Hebrew word for name is Shem. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for name is Anima. And between those two words, you find the, the word name used over a thousand times in Scripture. Over a thousand times. Throughout Scripture, when God revealed a new aspect of his character to his people, he often did so by revealing a new name. And it's, it's really true that you and I do not face a situation in life or any challenge that there is not a name of God that applies to our situation and our challenge, which is extremely comforting and very empowering as well. God's name is literally the key that unlocks the treasure that he has in store for us, the treasure of who he is and the treasure of what he has uh, that he wants to do for us. One of the first things we need to understand when we talk about God's name and when we try to understand it is that scripture says God's name is holy. It's hallowed. It's set apart. The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sacred, sanctified, set apart. Holy is your name. Your name is different from everybody else because you are different. And all that that means. When we try and understand the names of God, we need to realize, first of all, that our, our own insignificance so that we might see his significance. So, so many times in our fleshly experience, we're so wrapped up in our, in our own uh, agendas, our own well-being, uh, our own concerns, so consumed with that, that we think that we're all that. And we need to begin by realizing that we are God's creation. We are not all that. He is everything that we desire. And that's the place where we need to start. We can't know the fullness of his names until we understand the limits of our own name and our own humanity. His names are to be honored, to be respected, to be revered, uh, because he deserves that. And that's the place that we need to start as we do the study of God's name. The revelation of God's names in Scripture tell us who he is, not who we think he is or who we want him to be. Scripture when God reveals his name in the Old Testament, he says, I am who I am, not I am who you want me to be. He is not the genie in the bottle that we kind of harness and manipulate in order to get the things that we want. He is who he is, and we need to understand that and realize that. As I said in the teaching teaser this week also, that it's interesting that when God introduces himself to us in Scripture, beginning in the book of Genesis, that he introduces himself as Elohim, the creator God. And we're going we're gonna to unpack that today and try and understand all that that means. Elohim means the creator God or literally the strong one, the strong one. And there's a number of different things that, that I believe that means. And if you're taking notes, these are the fill-ins on your outline. Uh, first of all, I believe that Elohim speaks of his eternal nature and his timelessness. So Elohim is about the eternal nature of God and his timelessness. God, Elohim, is independent from the constraints of time. In the beginning, God created. 
God created the beginning, God created time, and if God created time, then God preceded time because he couldn't have created something that already existed. If time didn't begin until he created it, then he must have been present before it. I heard a comedian this week, he was joking, he said, in the beginning, there was nothing, and God said, let there be light. There was still nothing, but you could see it a lot better. <laughs> that was good. As I was studying the, the eternal nature of God and his timelessness, I had never really considered this before, but one, one commentator was saying, you and I have a yesterday, we have a tomorrow, and we have these because we are subject to time, but God has no yesterday. God has no tomorrow because he is outside of time and space. He is timeless. He is eternal. Everything for God is right now. He has no past. He has no future. He is the right now, ever-present God. And I thought, what a great way to understand Emmanuel, God with us. That the reason why God is always present and available and dialed in to who we are and, and what's going on in our life is because he's not caught up in the past. He's not preoccupied with the future. He lives right in the present. He is the eternal, present, eternal, available God. And that's super, super comforting. Elohim is, first of all, eternal and timeless. Secondly, he's transcendent yet present. Transcendent yet present. Transcendent meaning that he goes beyond time and space, and yet he also occupies time and space. He enters into time and space, so he is both outside of it and beyond it, but also intimately involved and present in it, which is just mind-blowing. <coughs> Why did God choose to introduce himself as Elohim? I believe it's because he wants us to recognize that he's transcendent, that he's distinct, that he's separate from his creation. And in order for God to be outside of time and space and matter, he must exist in another dimension uh, that isn't tethered to time and space and matter the way that ours is. He operates in another realm, and that's what we affirm and believe. And it's precisely why we have a hard time figuring them out why we're not able to explain him and describe him in human finite terms, because often our, our language, our articulation, falls woefully short. We don't have earthly examples for the Trinity, for example. But Elohim also reveals a God who abides in the realm that we know and in the realm that we experience. The prophet Jeremiah offers us a wonderful glimpse into uh, this delicate balance of God's presence in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. You can look it up later. But Jeremiah says, I am a God, actually God is speaking through Jeremiah, and he says, am I a God who is near? Elohe Mikarov, declares the Lord, that's his Hebrew name. And not a God far off, Elohe Merachok. Can a, a, a man hide himself in hiding places that I, so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? So God is affirming here, I, I am a God who is both beyond your comprehension and your earthly experience, but I am also a God who fills time and space. I am both, both and. I'm not one or the other, I am both. This passage in Jeremiah reveals that God is both transcendent 
beyond but imminent presence. Elohim created the heavens and the earth, existing outside of it, yet Elohim also filled the heavens and the earth, existing within it. The theological word that we use for that is omnipresent. He is everywhere. If you haven't read Psalm 139 in a while, read that today or read that this week. It's one of the most beautiful passages of the scripture that speaks of the presence of God, that there is literally no corner, no shadow of his creation that he is not intimately aware of and involved in. So the God who created it all, who's outside of it, who's beyond it, who's not tethered by the constraints of time and space and matter, has chosen willfully to enter into it and be involved in it. I read someone this week that said the triune God is in the world, nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Yet the world is also encompassed by his loving presence. He has the whole world in his hands, while at the same time inhabiting the whole world. We just go, you know. (laughs) That's when we start getting down on our knees and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Is, is, is our Lord God. Another person said, God is over all things and under all things, outside of all, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above, presiding, holy beneath, sustaining, holy without, embracing, and holy within, filling. Love that. Like God is, he's our all in all. We say that, but there's some real depth and truth to that. We rarely think about the air that we breathe. It's all around us. It's part of our human existence within our atmosphere and within earth until you get out into space. It's there all the time. And in a similar way, God's presence penetrates us. It's all around us. It's always embracing us because he is omnipresent. He has created all and he is intimately involved in in all. So he is transcendent beyond yet also present and imminent. Thirdly, God is the creator, not the created. And that's one of the things that as you read Romans 1, in the end times, people will get that completely screwed up. In the end times, it says that people will worship the creation rather than the creator. They'll worship the things that God made rather than the one who made them. And that's when we know that we have our priorities completely out of, out of whack. When the cults come to your door, which, by the way, I think three of the, the biggest cults today are Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and Scientology, all of which did not begin until like at least the 1800s, which is a head-scratcher in terms of you know, religion kind of predating everything. But when they come to your door, they will say that, they will say things like, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was a God, and, and we will all be gods. And like, no, you know, we will be one day conformed, transformed into God's image, but we will never be God. Because even though through Jesus we are offered eternal life, life without end, we had a starting point. God has no starting point. He, he is pre-existent. Jesus says that in that same high, high priestly prayer that I just referenced. He said, Father, now glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began. So Jesus' life did not begin in the manger. He existed from the beginning of time. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in a bit, too. But God is the creator, not the creation. And we need to constantly remember that. God identifies himself as Elohim 35 times between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's the consistent word. It's the only word that God uses of himself in those opening verses of Scripture. Elohim, the creator God. And this is because as humans, we reconfigure things, we recalibrate things, we reform things. Mankind cannot create something out of nothing. It's the, the famous Latin uh, phrase, ex nihilo. You've probably heard that. God created ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. When I was 13 years old growing up in Santa Barbara, I went to the Arlington Theater, and I saw the movie, Oh God, starring George Burns. And one of the famous parts of that that I remember is he's in court, and he's defending himself, and he says to the judge, he says, have you ever tried making a fish from scratch? You know, and he got at the essence of God. God does not use raw materials in order to creatively make things. God makes it all. I mean, without him, th there's nothing. That's why, as a creationist, I, I, I can believe in a big bang that God caused, but to believe that somehow all of these chemicals were just randomly floating in the universe and came together and formed intricate, complicated, complex life as we know it today is a bigger faith leap for me than to believe that there's an eternal, almighty God who always existed, who created the raw materials that represent everything that we see today. Far less faith for that and a far more personal existence. He is the creator, not the creation. That's exactly what God specializes in, is creating something out of nothing. I love how the book of Hebrews describes God's creative process. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the author says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Not by his hands, he didn't even get his hands dirty, by, by the spoken word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Everything that we see was made out of stuff that was invisible. Why? Not because we don't have the ability to see it, but because it didn't exist before he made it. That's what we affirm about Elohim, the creator God. Many of you might know friends of yours, acquaintances who are inventors, but I guarantee that you don't have a single inventor friend or acquaintance who is able to make something out of nothing. That, that's God's, only God does that. That's what God specializes in, only he can do that. God not only created a child by the name of Isaac through a barren 80-year-old woman named Sarah, but he also blessed the Virgin Mary with the Christ child. When Abraham and Sarah doubted God's ability, uh, he responded by saying, is anything too difficult for the Lord? When, when the Virgin Mary asked the angel Gabriel how she could conceive a child having never known a man in a sexual manner, Gabriel replied, nothing will be impossible for God. This is what God does. Creating stuff out of nothing. That's why when you and I come to God with our problems and we're trying to, you know, figure out solutions for him, options for him, as if he's got his back against the wall and he's limited and he needs our help and our suggestions, 
and we're all stressed out and that. He's like, I created you. I created everything around you. Like nothing is difficult for me. You, you need to learn that. You need to come to a place of rest and trust and confidence in who I am. And that's why God begins in Scripture by introducing himself to us as Elohim. Scientists report that each of the 100 to 200 billion galaxies in space that they've been able to now see through the Hubble telescope and other technology has up to 100 billion stars in it. Again, if 100 billion to 200 billion galaxies, each containing up to 100 billion stars, is too mind-blowing for us to grasp, just consider the galaxy of, of Andromeda. Andromeda is roughly 2.5 million light years away from us. That means if you had friends living on Andromeda and you sent them a message at the speed of a of radio wave, which is the speed of light, 186,000 uh, miles per second, you couldn't expect to receive a reply for 5 million years. That is just like... That, that's when you start recalculating your math, like, I, I, you know, I must have not carried a number, or this is, <laughs> this, wait, you know, like, how would, it's just, yeah, it's just nuts, absolutely nuts. And this and the rest of the fathomless universe came into existence simply by a spoken word, a command. Somebody joked this week, one of the commentators, what, what if God had shouted, like, wow, you know? <laughs> As if things would be more intense, but he raised his voice. I mean, it's the whole issue of Moses striking the rock rather than, you know, hitting it rather than just tapping it, uh, showing human power rather than God's power that does not need force. It doesn't need, doesn't need volume to increase in its intensity. Well, a, another part of Elohim is that he is plural and not just singular. He is both plural and singular. And again, we try and think it our earthly experience like, What's that? I guess scientists have been able to capture water as ice and vapor and liquid all at the same time in the laboratory. So that begins to approximate it. I read somebody this week that I had never heard this one before. It's like a pretzel where it's interwoven and there's three distinct coals, but it's all like whatever. Like, you know, I'd like to think that the, the, the Trinity is a little bit more complex than a pretzel. But... God is both plural and singular. Scripture uses both plural and singular pronouns when referring to Elohim. His works are usually described by singular verb forms. So Elohim is a plural word by construct, but often a singular word by usage, revealing the unique makeup of, of the Trinity. God is a plural being, although he exists as one God. The God who has claimed us for himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just Father, not just Son, not just Spirit. But God for us is Father. God with us is Son. And God in us is Spirit. He is three and one. Somebody said uh, as, that I read this week, Pondering the eternal, essential Trinity is the most concrete and biblical way of acknowledging the distinction between who God is and what he does. They said God is eternally trinity. 
because triunity belongs to his very nature. Things like creation and redemption are things that God does, but he would still be God if he had not done them. But Trinity is who God is. And without being the Trinity, he would not be God. God minus creation would still be God. But God minus Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would not be God. So when we praise God for being our creator and redeemer, we're praising him for what he does. But behind what he does is the greater glory of who he is. Behind his act is his being. His being, his essence. Philosophers call it his essential nature. If you want another thing to read this week, which is just mind-blowing and awesome, read the beginning of Hebrews. That is one of the greatest proof texts for the divinity of Jesus because it's basically saying in philosophical Greek terms of the day that Jesus Christ is the exact divine essence of God. He's the radiance, the exact representation, like he is God. He's not a copy of God. He's not the son, just the Son of God. He is God. Well, the last aspect of Elohim, which is perhaps one of the most important for you and I and the most meaningful, is that Elohim is personal. Elohim is personal. The Bible would never say, may the force be with you. Because although that's comforting on one level, God is much more than just some raw cosmic force. He is personal. One of the things that I had to do for my religious studies major at Westmont College is read thousands and thousands of pages of ancient Near East literature. And I have to say, two of the toughest things I had to read in college and seminary were not only ancient Near East literature, but philosophy. The kind of thing where you read a page and you get done and you're like, what did I just read? You know. <coughs> but the one thing that stands out in all my reading is that out of all of the ancient Near East religions and all of their accounts of creation and uh, all of their parallel accounts to the Bible, they all described a God who was dispassionate and distant and not personally involved. Kind of a God who made everything and wound it up and just let it go. Christianity is unique and distinct in that God is intimately involved with his creation. No other... Religion has a God that came in human flesh and took on our form and died in our place in order to reconcile our relationship with him and take care of our sinfulness. Other religions, there's not even a, an assurance or confidence of what happens when we die. Maybe you'll come back in another life form. Maybe it'll be better than this one, but there's no guarantees. Whereas Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise because of your understanding of who I am and your confession that you deserve what you're receiving right now, but I don't because I'm the Lamb of God and I'm taking your place. God is personal. As we skip a few chapters ahead in Genesis, past Genesis 1-1, we have the account in Genesis 3 of God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day and calling out to Adam and Eve. God had a relationship, a personal relationship with his creation. As Elohim, God personally interacts with his creation, 
Although many believe that the universe has no supreme being or that God or a God with whom we can relate, as I said, uh, a, a God who just wound it up and let it go, that we simply interact with nature or with unseen, un- unidentifiable, unidentifiable forces, yet our universe is personal because Elohim is personal. And as Christians, we believe in a personal universe, a personal world that has life and meaning and truth and destiny because that's the nature of our God. So everything that we believe and experience ties into the essence of the God that we believe in. We're relational beings because we're created in the image of a relational God and how important that is. As we close today, I just want to circle back to what I said earlier. You know, too often we get hung up trying to figure out answers to our problems. That's kind of the level at which which we exist most of the time. And rather than trying to visualize how God is going to fix our situations, how he's going to end the trials in our life or compensate for our failures and our weaknesses, we just need to remember his name. And we need to remember the power that is part of that name. Not genie in a bottle manipulative power, but the power that is intrinsically tied and wrapped up in that name. And that's why this series is so exciting, because in understanding the Old Testament names of God, we're going to start out with the three foundational names. Today it was Elohim, next week it's Jehovah, and then it's Adonai. And then we get into the compound names, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, God our provider, God our healer, and on and on up until September. But as we unlock the names, we are understanding the power in the name, the power in the person, and what that means for us on a personal, tangible level. Our job as Christ followers isn't to figure out our personal destiny all by ourselves. We don't need to create it. Elohim, the creator God, has already created it. We don't need to force it. Elohim, the strong one, has already set it up. We don't need to find it. Elohim, the personal and ever-present God, will reveal it to us as we seek him day by day. Let's pray.